Welcome everyone to episode 131, Testicular Endos. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Daylon James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. It's brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Daylon? I'm doing all right. I'm a bit mystified by the title of today's episode, Testicular Endos. You know what I think <laughs> that is... was? That was a case of let's just not try to be funny. Let's <laughs> keep it simple so we don't piss anybody off. But uh, I can't wait to hear. You know, I love endothelium and I have testes, so I'm particularly invested <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> it is full of interest and wonder for you <laughs> today. <laughs> oh my goodness. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Yes, I did. It was, you know, just what you expect. I'm glad it's over, but you know, it, it was great. It was the cliche. So uh, I'm not complaining. I'm blessed to have the grief of a Thanksgiving with family. How about you? How'd your Scott? <laughs> Same here. It was wonderful. Lots of family, lots of food, but I was very glad to get back to my quiet house and my normal life after the holiday was over. <laughs> holiday over? Are you crazy? It's just beginning. I, yeah, I know. The Christmas is coming. Hanukkah, just beginning, everyone. Yes, happy Hanukkah to those of you out there who celebrate Hanukkah. Almost to the Christmas, Christmas day. We're getting there. Rolling to the end of the year, and we have a show. Let's talk about business, right? We've got all sorts of stuff going on, but you can all check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where not only can you subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. You can follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and the Stem Cell Podcast is now on Spotify. Yay, that's so great. Yeah. If you're a Spotify user, then it'll be really easy for you to find the Stem Cell Podcast in their podcast directory. You can find us there and on other podcast apps as well, like Stitcher and iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, if you're using iTunes, can you give the Stem Cell Podcast a rating? Rating the podcast takes a couple of seconds, and it helps us show up in people's searches for science podcasts. It would really help us out if you could do that. So if you're in iTunes, give us a few stars. Tell us how we're doing. Now onto the show. We've got all the science news that you've come to love and an excellent guest. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Sandra Riom, a researcher who led a study recently that's looking at the role of testicular endothelial cells, hence the title of the show, in the germline stem cell niche. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, that's going to be great. I already alluded to how excited I am about that. But before we get there, I just want to remind everyone out there that Stem Cell Technologies would like to let you know they're hiring. They're a world leader in developing tools and services for sciences working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. And they're united by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally. Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists. That's the slogan. That's truth. That's fact, people. Stem Cell is looking for creative, driven, science-minded people to join their international team. 
to explore more than 80 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and science communication at jobs.stemcell.com. All right, Kiki, let's get on to this roundup, can we? Yes, we can. Let's not be depressed. Maybe you can zap your brain into happiness. Well, possibly. I mean, there's this, I, there's this, this idea of like, you know, a little, few little jolts and it'll change your personality a little bit, give you some, some happiness, excitement that you didn't used to have. Well, researchers at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, Vikram Rao and Kristen Sellers and their colleagues, they studied 25 people who were undergoing treatment for epilepsy. And in, involved in that, there were electrodes implanted in various spots in these people's brains. And so they published their study online in Current Biology. And at the beginning of the experiment, researchers asked the patients to take some mood tests. And it showed that some of the patients had signs of mild to severe depression. And then they started stimulating parts of the brain, electrical zaps here and there around the brain with those implanted electrodes. And after the stimulation began, the scientists then asked the subjects to report their mood verbally and in an app. Many of the spots that they zapped in the brain didn't affect people's mood at all, but a particular area called the lateral orbitofrontal cortex, this is a region that's just behind the eyes, when it was stimulated, people said they felt better. But it was only the patients who started out with moderate or severe depression scores that saw improvement when it was stimulated. People who felt pretty good didn't really have much room for improvement, and so there weren't mood changes that were reported. And so this study focused on mood during the brain stimulation, and so the next step is to find out whether stimulation has lasting effects or if there's a certain amount of stimulation that could lead to a lasting result. Yeah, this field is burgeoning and all avenues are being explored now with the hallucinogenic mushrooms and the MDMA and Mm -hmm. of course the electrostim. It's funny how kind of old ideas that that they weren't debunked, but maybe we went heavy to this pharma paradigm. Maybe we're circling back to these old, here in this case, the whole zap your brain idea. I feel like that's (laughs) years old, but uh, it's real, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, if you think about it, if you're stimulating, you know, our, our nerves are electrical conductors, right? The electrochemical. But if you stimulate them electrically, then that's going to cause them to dump their neurotransmitters, maybe to start making connections that had been pruned away. So maybe the electrical stimulation increases the amount of synaptic growth and uh, at the ends of the dendrites so that they're making more connections. Maybe lots of stimulation can lead to sustained growth and connectivity that would actually lead to sustained changes. I wonder also if this electrode stimulation, you know, that's invasive. You're putting electrodes in the brain, but there are methods of transcranial stimulation where there are electrodes externally on the head, but that are used to target interior regions of the brain. And if some of that transcranial stimulation could work as well. That'd be solid. I got to tell this to my wife, by the way, she freaks out about the EMF. 
in the Wi-Fi. So <laughs> well, you don't know. It's really good for us. Hmm. It might be really good for you. That's right. <laughs> All right. Next story. Gut bacteria. We're learning more and more and more about how gut bacteria affect our health. Uh, according to a new study in Science Translational Medicine, old mice lose some bacteria as they age. And the loss leads to a triggering of inflammation, which eventually leads cells to ignore the hormone insulin. And it's this ignoring of insulin that allows glucose processing to take place. This is insulin resistance and is a hallmark of type 2 diabetes. And so this study, although it's in mice, may suggest that for people as we age, the loss of bacteria could be what drives insulin resistance and acquired diabetes, type 2 diabetes, in older adults. Researchers have suspected that bacteria and other microbes are involved in aging, but they haven't really been able to tease out in what way they are involved. And so finding in this study what happens to mouse gut bacteria with age really puts us in a step in the right direction. So the mice lose a particular species of bacteria called Ackermansia mucinifila bacteria. And it's also called ACK, <laughs> A-K-K, ACK. And there are some other microbes that are lost as well. But these microbes seem to be involved in breaking down dietary fiber into short-chain fatty acids. And it's those fatty acids that then go on to signal to bacteria and cells to perform certain functions. So losing ACK leads to less of this uh, fatty acid production. And the loss of the fatty acid production then leads on this chain reaction of dysfunction and insulin resistance. Treating old mice, and they also treated elderly rhesus macaques, with an antibiotic actually led to an increase in the abundance of ACK in the animal's guts and relieved that insulin resistance. And another thing that they did was give fatty acids to the animals, and that had a similar effect. And so there might be multiple ways to get the same result, which is basically to head off insulin resistance at the past and keep aging people healthier longer. So what about, the, I thought it's, you want like probiotics? I, I'm, I'm kind of naive to this, but they're giving them antibiotics to get rid of other guys, I guess, so that the ACK can make a comeback. But our ACK, they're not just, I thought they would be more of like a positive, you know, like the whole microbiome, one of the good guys. I'm, I'm a bit confused. Yeah. yeah, so it's probably, you know, population, bacterial population dynamics where there are some species of bacteria that start taking over, which lead to a reduction in the ACK bacteria. And so if you use the antibiotic, maybe that starts to allow the balance to be regained. It does seem, you know, not like the obvious solution, but it's interesting that it works that way. I think so. How about peanuts? Oh, God, I got a kid with a peanut allergy, so I'm, I'm all ears on this one. There's been research and a few suggestions over the last few years that exposing children to peanuts early in life can keep them from getting peanut allergies. And it's been suggested also that women who are pregnant or breastfeeding actually maybe should eat peanut products because that might help avoid 
a peanut allergy in the future. However, this study out in the New England Journal of Medicine as of November 18th really tested the exposure therapy question. They took 372 children ages 4 to 17 years, and they used what they call in the study peanut-derived investigational biologic oral immunotherapy drug, AR-101, or as the researcher in charge called it, peanut flour in a capsule. (laughs) Yeah, and the way that they worked out the dosage, they started with a very small dose, about 0.5 milligrams of peanut protein, which is the equivalent of only one six-hundredth of a large peanut. So this, it, looking at it, it's like almost like homeopathic doses here, right? You know, it's this very, very small amount of the peanut. 372 children, they started with the very lowest dose and increased the peanut protein every two weeks until the kids made it to 300 milligrams, which is about the same as a single peanut. Kids who are allergic to peanuts were given either a placebo or these doses of peanut protein for a year. And only 4% of the children who got the placebo were able to tolerate peanut protein later. But of those who completed that year of therapy, 67% could at the end tolerate the equivalent of two large peanuts. When the trial ended, all of the participants were challenged with increasing doses of peanut protein under supervision. So this isn't like, hey, take the peanut protein and then we're not going to be there in case you have anaphylactic shock response. But it was very supervised. They discovered that these kids were able to, for the most part, for the large part, able to tolerate peanut protein doses of at least these two peanuts. It may mean that they can tolerate more. I'm not sure about that. But this study shows that in a large proportion of peanut allergic children, they will become more tolerant with an exposure therapy. This is a big deal for parents like me who have a kid with peanut allergy. And I'll tell you why. There's a lot of reasons. But first, the thing that's so crippling about peanut allergy is that it's like an all or nothing thing. You'd be like, oh, my kid isn't really. It's like, yeah, he gets hives sometimes, not always. Or he just doesn't like taste or itchy throat. And my wife will be the first to tell you, oh, just because he doesn't have anaphylaxis 999 times doesn't mean the thousandth time after eating an iota milligram of peanut exposed in like a birthday cake that he won't die on the floor. Like that's the way she's thinking. So all that we want in this population is to the kids to be able to be exposed. We don't want them out there eating peanut butter sandwiches to be able to survive yeah. this exposure. And like in terms of clinically, because there's really not a lot of ways to go when you have a kid with a peanut allergy. They pretty much say at this point, we're kind of in on flux now, but before the last couple of years, it was absolute. Your kid has a peanut allergy, zero exposure, take an EpiPen and don't ever eat peanuts ever. And we would always argue, well, that doesn't seem sustainable. And it was really hard to find an allergist who wasn't so absolute. And you find some of them cropping up year over year. But there was always this resistance that, oh, there's preliminary studies and this and that. Mm-hmm. Is the New England Journal of Medicine a prospective trial with a clear result? So all those allergists that were just, I mean, I don't want to unfairly malign any of them, but it seemed like a lot of them were just like, look, liability, policy, here's your EpiPen, 
leave me alone. So now they kind of have to listen. So there's alternatives so that you can, you know, live a life where you're not in fear of peanuts. I mean, it's as a society, it's ridiculous. And we created a lot of peanut allergies in this couple of decades of the total peanut aversion. Mm-hmm. A lot of allergists will agree. So that's, I'm sorry I just hijacked your roundup, but I'm just telling you, this is a big deal for me and a lot of people. Yeah, and I think I, I'm glad that you did hijack it a little bit because your perspective is really important and it's, you know, you're right. This is going to be important for a lot of people. I just want to say this is in the New England Journal of Medicine, but this is not the point where you go, here, little Timmy, have a little bit of peanut and start, you know, don't just start feeding your kids peanuts if they have a peanut allergy, thinking you can do the exposure therapy on your own. If you're interested in this, talk to an allergist, talk to your doctor. And, you know, I'm going to guess that this is still going to be followed up by more research before it really starts being applied. So just be patient. There's a strict monitoring regimen. You just got to go with it. Look, yeah. at the, you know what? The, the new policy, actually, it's some of the more progressive allergists for all you seeking information is that you begin with monitoring and they look for immediate adverse effects. You can do at home, but every time you escalate the dose, which is maybe week over week, then you have to be monitored for that time. So it isn't that restrictive, but you are eating peanut every day semi-monitored, we're talking about like a Reese's peanut butter, little Reese's pieces thing at the end. And it's relatively painless, but you just got to find someone who'll do it for you. Yep. And my final story for the roundup, we're not talking peanuts, we're talking coffee and tea. You're a tea drinker, right, Dalen? Oh, I drink it all at this point. I'm just trying (laughs) to stay alive. (laughs) Just give me the caffeine. Yeah, I drink both coffee and tea, but I really do like a nice cup of dark coffee, rich coffee. But it turns out, according to a recent study in Scientific Reports, that tea drinkers and coffee drinkers potentially have genetic differences that lead them to their preferences. In this new study, researchers looked at variants of genes that are involved in detecting bitter tastes for caffeine, quinine, that's the taste in tonic water, and propyl thiouracil, or prop, a synthetic chemical, it's not naturally found in food or drink. Other bitter components naturally in coffee and tea may trigger the same taste responses as quinine and prop do. So these researchers looked at the DNA from more than 400,000 participants. So it's a, a broad examination of genes from the UK Biobank. And uh, they also had the participants reported information about their health and lifestyle, including how much tea or coffee they drink. And when they added up the variants in these taste genes, they created a genetic score for taste intensity, how intensely the person tastes the different bitter chemicals and compared the scores to the reported beverage choices. People who had the highest genetic score for detecting caffeine's bitterness were 20% more likely to be heavy coffee drinkers and drinking drinking four or more cups a day and then those without the increased sensitivity. And that this is, again, one of those kind of weird results because you'd think that if the, you have an increased sensitivity to bitterness, you'd be more likely to avoid the bitter flavor. And so the researchers now think that our bitter sensing is actually much more complex and our behavior related to those bitter flavors and the genes that allow us to sense them, that it's much more nuanced in the way that it actually works. They think coffee drinkers may have learned to enjoy the bitterness of caffeine because of how it signals 
the physiological effect of the buzz. But tea drinkers might not actually like the bitterness of the prop and quinine and stick with tea instead of the coffee. So there's differences in the genes leading to potentially these differences. And maybe there's some learned behavioral stuff in there too. Yeah, I just can't imagine anyone drinking coffee for the first time, being totally naive to it and being like, mmm. Like, I feel like it's a learned, like your immediate biologic response is like, yuck. And then, (laughs) well, I feel so good, you know? So, But I mean, I get it. I I think that there's a lot of truth to that, that we do. As kids, we want everything sweet, and then we get a more nuanced palate and appreciate that bitterness has its bonuses, I guess. That's right. Bitterness has its bonuses. That does it for me. What do you have? Kiki, you know, this was a big, big week. By the time, I guess, the audience listens to it, who knows what the lag will be, but everyone's still going to be talking about it and reporting about it. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to add our two cents talking about this whole CRISPR thing. I'm going to put half my roundup into that because it, I mean, it could take the whole roundup. But most of these discussions probably already been had, hopefully around people's dinner table, but definitely in a lot of labs out there. First, just for those who want a little bit of level of detail, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recap the science and, you know, what was done here, okay, just to be very clear, I think uniformly people appreciate was a premature, but there is some science that we got to talk about first. This is not something that was reviewed, but if you look, you can find his talk over at the Meeting for Human Genome Editing, the second annual thing. You can find it online. I encourage you to look at it just to see this guy, you know, deer in headlights. I actually pitied him, uh, you know, and I think that we should be a bit agnostic before we throw this guy in the pit. But to get to the science, okay, so what he did, he modified CCR5, okay? So what is CCR5? It's a co-receptor on white blood cells that allows an immune response and mediates the inflammatory response, okay, in, in the aftermath or during infection, Okay, and the idea and the rationale for this is that this is an entry point for the HIV variant, right? It gets into our many strains can gain access to T cells by the CCR5. And this was illuminated by this famous Berlin study where you had this CCR5 delta 32 deletion, okay, where a patient who had cancer, hematological malignancy, they had bone marrow transplant in order to address that. They had HIV in advance of that. And when they got the transplant, the HIV after, you know, years at this point was undetectable. So this opened a whole new idea of the therapeutic avenue towards treating HIV by using these CCR5 receptor antagonists. Okay, there was a whole class of these drugs that approved. This is decades ago. No, a decade, more than a decade ago. And in that decade, there's been a lot of investigation in how you can antagonize the CCR5 receptor to keep the HIV from gaining access into the T cells. And there's even been one drug that was approved by the FDA and is used. All right. So the rationale was there. But, you know, the other side of that is CCR5. It's also important for, you know, it might prevent the action of some diseases, like it's thought bubonic plague may have been, there may have been resistance to bubonic plague conferred by this and HIV clearly. But other diseases and the complications and pathologies following from them, like uh, influenza, West Nile virus, it's thought that the CCR5 is important in mediating a beneficial response to that via this whole inflammatory processes, okay? 
So just to give you an idea of how prevalent this is, Kiki, CCR5, this Delta 32 deletion, so heterozygotes, one allele copy is present in 10% of the European population, and it's present as a homozygote. So both copies are this Delta 32 deletion in 1%. In only European populations, though, it's not present at all anywhere else in the world. And what this tells you is that this is a, something that emerged only in the last 1,000 to 2,000 years. It was a single thought. And they, it's agreed by many to be a single mutation that emerged in a single individual that then was disseminated. And in order to get to that 10% prevalence as heterozygotes, it had to provide some benefit. Otherwise, to get to 10%, it would take 100,000 years. So the fact that it's present in 10% after only 1,000 years means it probably has some selective influence. Okay, so that's the whole backdrop. What is CCR5? What does it do? Sorry about the name butchering. My man, our man out there, very courageous and irresponsible man. What he did is that they knocked this gene out. Okay, so they didn't do the delta 32 deletion, which changes it. They just got rid of it. So there's a frame shift and it's not encoded. And the reason why, you know, it's taken such a storm, it's been such a, you know, a lightning rod is the ethics, but also just in terms of the scientific method, they were very careful. The group, they started with monkeys, they did human embryos, and they did in human embryonic stem cells. There was a lot of diagnostics to show how frequently they had off-target mutations. So I think the group was very careful in implementing this. But ultimately, their decisions that they made were ethically fraught. For example, knowing that only one of these two twin girls was edited to completion, knowing that she had only one copy of the CCR5 allele edited and knocked out, they still went through with that and implanted that embryo, and that was Lulu. And the other one is a double homozygote now deletion for CCR5. Okay, so she's, that's Nana. All right, so we have Lulu and Nana, one of which is a heterozygote and one of which is a homozygote deletion for CCR5. And they've looked at that patient, also in Lulu, who's the heterozygote, they found that there was one off-target, the potential for one off-target mutation, which we don't know because we don't have the paper for review, but it was judged did not actually carry through in the patient. It was, it was a pre-diagnosis in the embryo that didn't carry through. So it looks like it was safe, but Kiki, there's so many unknown unknowns here. And this is where I want to invite you in here to the conversation. That was the science. Now let's talk about the ethics here. It was really all about the choice of disease, the informed consent process, what we're going to do in follow-up with these patients, and what does this modification, which many might argue is an enhancement, mean for these two human beings who have their whole life yep. ahead of them? Please, can you just come in on any one of them? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the big question here is, you know, you're editing something in a human and they never had a chance to consent to the change. And like you brought up about the function of the CCR5 gene, it's still the selective benefit of CCR5 is still, or this mutation of it, is still relatively unknown. And so even though the one twin who has the homozygous edit she could be resistant or immune to HIV as she grows older, 
but maybe it will increase her chances of getting other diseases and make her more likely to get sick from other causes. And that's part of the question. We don't know enough about this gene. It's just, and you, you brought up also there are other treatments available for HIV. We don't have a cure yet, obviously, but there are treatments that are available. And so this expensive whole genome sequencing, that's a really expensive process. The whole process of the IVF and the editing with the CRISPR, that's going to be expensive also. So it's going to put this in a, you know, a class system. Who can afford in the future to edit their children's genomes to make them healthy versus who can't? It's the haves and the have-nots, and that's where it's going to end up. And something like this, where there's already treatments available, why do that expensive, invasive procedure when you can just use medications that are currently available? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a, 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 it's every single thing that could be like a question, I think, in ethics. It seems like it's all packed in there. <laughs> it's all in there. You're right. On the side with the science, what I, what I learned about looking at the Delta 32 deletion, so it's like a partially encoded gene, right? That the, Some domain is missing. But what's interesting about that is that having one copy of that and having the other copy be okay, it still undermines the okay one because it's a, the deletion and it can actually co-opt with the CXCR4 receptor. That's another entry point for HIV. So like the natural form that can, can mitigate the disease transmission. It's a kind of like a semi-form, right? That then mucks up the works. In this case, they're completely deleting it. So like having a one healthy copy and one just gone is the same as having two healthy copies. Whereas having one Delta 32 and one healthy copy, the Delta 2 can undermine the healthy. So yeah. I'm afraid that even scientifically, what the intent here, it may not pan out the way the group had hoped, and you know, just as another shot off the bow here, there's these studies in mouse that show that having a CCR5 delta 32 deletion can lead to increased cognitive function in mice. And I don't think huh. it's a coincidence that this was chosen because, and I don't want to, there is a prejudice, I would say, that in China there's tremendous ambition toward that end, toward enhancement. And I think that this was conveniently chosen because it served both ends. And I think that that's what really bugs me out and makes yep. me feel so, so much in my heart as a parent. And I think you'll attest to this, Kiki, is that these are two girls that one of them is like discount. One of them is just what we wanted. And one of them is a, this is a country where girls were killed because they could only have one kid. So you would kill your girl to have a boy. What do you think this is going to do to their marriage prospects? What do you think this is going to do to their whole life? So, I mean, there's so much there. And just I mean, as a final thought before you, I think you can close on this. I just want to say on the other side of this, I think this is such a unique thing because you have now a human test case that's out there mm -hmm. and all salivating to see how it turns out. No matter what anyone says, this is a really important test case and we're not going to have another one. This was a guy who went rogue Yep. And like maybe at the end of the day, 50 years on, one silver lining here is going to be that this crazy dude and his group at least got out there in front of it. And God willing, there's no adverse consequences in this case where we can all say, you know, what? it was premature, but we learned a lot from Lulu and Nana and it, it revolutionized medicine because that's at the bottom line here is that whether we like it or not, 
medicine as we knew it is, is something else now. Absolutely. The fact that he crossed that line that had been agreed upon by the international community, you know, there's lots of embryonic research using CRISPR systems at this point in time, but none of them are allowed to go full term, right? It's you look at it, see how de- development starts to move, and then, okay, let's let's turn that off. Let's put those cells away. We're not going to allow it to go any further. And that's the line that we weren't supposed to cross, and he totally did it. And how the international community responds to this is also going to set a really important precedent for the future and for researchers who may be looking at going rogue also. You know, the governments and institutions are all going to be a part of deciding, you know, is this guy going to be punished? Is there something that's going to happen as a result of this? Or is it just going to be a slap on the wrist? And, you know, is the United States going to outlaw this kind of research completely moving into the future? Will China continue to roll forward with it? And that kind of disparate patchwork quilt response to this event is going to change the face of this future gene surgery, the future of medicine around the world. Yeah. And the universe. The, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, there's so many things. Like you, you really... I think, hit it on the head when you said that this one story, it has everything in it, that all aspects of any ethical decision, the science, the ethics, it's this whole thing wraps up so much about who we are as people and where we're going to go. Where are we going to go, Dalen? I don't know. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm th- <laughs> it's not a good example at all, but I just remember in New York on September 11th, being like looking at the spectacle and being like, oh my gosh, like this is such a big deal that, you know, like what's going to happen next? It's not excitement or anticipation. It's this, it's a dread of what we've done. It's like, I'm sure what Oppenheimer thought when all that went down, you know, although let's not be too grave. I think there's a good, there's a, there's an upside here is what I wanted to end on. So let's, yeah, I mean, the medicine is going to move forward. This gene editing, there it's not just CRISPR-Cas. There are other systems that are being used to learn how we can do this. And gene surgery is going to be medicine of the future. And it's coming faster and faster toward us. We're getting there. It's going to be part of our future. And it's going to help us. It's going to help us get rid of diseases like sickle cell anemia, what is it, the beta thalassemia, you know, there's so many things that it's going to help with. And that is such a positive, positive point for how we can be healthy in the future. I think our guiding, our guiding principle has to be help without enhance. But let's be honest, that's probably inevitable. Anyway, moving. <laughs> we have now just a little bit of time left for these stem cell stories. So I'm going to shoot through a couple of here. One, it's just, I think, a really unique idea that forces you to be flexible. The dogma, even though it's not exactly dogma, but you didn't realize how much of dogma it was. The whole idea of hematopoietic stem cells having their origin in the bone marrow. Of course, that's true. But I think what this study coming out of Megan Sykes at Columbia University shows you is that there's other sites where hematopoietic stem cells can reside and they can be a source of repopulating cells that end up contributing to your entire tree of blood cells. So this is a study, the backdrop here is intestinal transplantation. Okay, It's increasingly common for a lot of diseases of the intestine, wasting degenerative diseases. 
and it's a treatment for intestinal failure, but that 50% of these grafts, they fail within five years. And that's because then the intestines is a huge load of white blood cell, immune cells, and that often leads to a graft-first-host disease. And about as many as 10% of the patients, you'll see graft-first-host or you'll see rejection of the, the implant. So it can really undermine the success of these treatments. And the reason why, as they found, is because they're a site of a lot of hematopoietic cells and oftentimes will result in like a mixed chimerism of the donor. And I think that's the really important point at the end of this. The descriptive study that the intestine has a lot of hematopoietic cells, but in patients that get these grafts, when it stabilizes, they're walking around as a hematopoietic chimera. And that's really important because that how did they arrive at this point where they have tolerance of the graft and the graft cells are tolerant of the host? You don't have the graft versus host disease. And Megan Sykes and her group essentially documented that shows that in post-transplant, looking at the donor T cells shows that they essentially undergo a selective process in the host lymphoid organs, and that allows them to acquire immune tolerance. And this is a really big deal because if you could apply the same mechanistic principles to every or any other transplant, hematopoietic transplant, it would severely mitigate the potential that that donor lymphoid T-cell fraction will attack the host and lead to, I mean, most notably these cytokine storm release syndromes, which are now uh, very common in the acute phase of following these new T-cell, CAR-T-based therapies. So trying to mitigate that process by uh, endowing the graft with tolerance could be a big deal for all kinds of transplants. So cell therapy, back to cell therapy, away from gene editing, to the more common conservative field of transplanting <laughs> people's guts. Yeah, being able to figure out how to bypass some of those the terrible effects of transplants, the rejection that so many people experience to be able to move past that and find ways to moderate it, make it less. I mean, it will just change people's lives. It, this is fantastic. Big deal. Graph first debilitating. Can you imagine? It's a war inside your body. Oh, boy. But you don't want either side to win. That's a sad thing. So <laughs> last story I have for you is a bit surprising. And the bottom line here is that the healthy blood cells have as much DNA mutations as leukemic cells. We all know with these you know, self-renewing cell populations, you get accumulation of DNA mutations as you age. And it's thought that those DNA mutations contribute to cancer. And of course, that's true. But uh, Ruben von Boxtel from the Netherlands, in collaboration with Fernando Carmago from Children's Hospital of Boston, who we actually had on the show a few months back, they uh, collaborated and have shown that the number of mutations in healthy versus leukemic blood cells doesn't differ. And it's not really the frequency of the mutations that's relevant then, it's the location. So they also showed, looking at the kinetics, that the lifetime, the life cycle of these hematopoietic blood stem cells they divide about once every 40 weeks. And this was really impressive to me. Every division, they get 11 mutations. Whoa. 11 mutations. So clearly, these are very seldom dividing every 40 weeks. But, you know, in a lifetime, as they divide, you can see how they multiply and you can see how the multi-hit hypothesis quickly stacks up. And then it's really kind of just bad luck. If you get the mutations in the wrong place, it can lead to tumors, but if you look at the hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells of patients with acute myeloid leukemia versus patients who are 
fit as a fiddle, they have the same amount of mutation, the same mutational burden. Although clearly in the AML patients, those mutations occur in tumor suppressors or other genes linked to cancer. So the next step here for uh, Van Boxel and Carmago and their teams is to study the origin of these common causative mutations in secondary cancer. So these are cancers in, in patients of, uh, who survive pediatric cancer. So kids who come back and they get cancer again, the idea has been in the past that a lot of times the new mutations in those patients occur as a result of the treatment. You know, you're having all these, you ablate all their bone marrow and then they have to totally reconstitute. It's a lot of opportunity to introduce new mutations and using the same method, they'll see if it's kind of just bad luck again, you know, these patients have a predisposition, or is it the treatment or is it just, you know, random chance? So they're taking this technology and trying to apply it to see if they can protect kids from recurrence or at least predict which kids are going to be at increased risk. So cool study out of them. And that's it. I'm out. Peak. A couple of blood stories and the biggest story of the year by far. By far. <laughs> the sneak study that nobody knew was coming but is the biggest study of the year. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for some amazing stem cell news. You love your blood. You love your blood. If I can get it, I put it in there. That's right. All right, moving on. It is time for our interview now. But before we get to the interview, I want to know, are you genome editing yet? Are you? CRISPR-Cas9 technology is transforming cell biology research but can be challenging to set up in the lab. Stem Cell Technologies is gathering feedback on this topic to start a discussion on key challenges. Take the survey for a chance to win a $500 travel award. $500 to help you go to a conference of your choice. Visit stemcell.com slash CRISPR survey. That's stemcell.com slash C-R-I-S-P-R survey. All right, so now into our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Sandra Riom, Assistant Professor of Cancer Biology at the Perlman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. One area of her lab's focus is on understanding the contribution of endothelial cells in different organs towards maintaining stem cell populations. So here today to talk with us about this work and her recent paper in Nature Communications, Dr. Yum, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. So can you expand a little bit on telling us what the work is in your lab and how you got into doing this research? So my lab has a longstanding interest in understanding the role of endothelial cells in different organ environments in both benign disease, in stem cell maintenance, and in tumor progression. Our recent work talks about the role of testicular endothelial cells in the promotion of spermatogonial stem cell maintenance and self renewal. And we got into this interestingly through a roundabout work. We're not, we weren't, you know, a germ cell or fertility lab, but one of our interests is in understanding clinical phenotypes in Down syndrome individuals. And we published a series of papers looking at how endothelial cells are defective in Down syndrome individuals, which contributes to their protection against solid tumors. But one of the other phenotypes is that males with Down syndrome are infertile. So what we did was we used, we profiled endothelial cells from different organs. So we took liver endothelial cells, lung endothelial cells, testicular endothelial cells, cardiac endothelial cells, and profiled their secretome and found that they were vastly different. What was very interesting is that 
testicular endothelial cells from Down syndrome mice versus non-Down syndrome mice showed significant defects of a factor called GDNF, glial-derived neurotrophic factor. And one of the most compelling roles for GDNF is its requirements to maintain spermatogonial stem cells. This became of interest because I collaborate with um, pediatric oncologists at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, um, Jill Ginsberg and Tom Colin. And one of the big issues in pediatric cancers is that these young boys who are diagnosed with cancer who are prepubertal, meaning they haven't reached puberty, so they don't have mature sperm yet, go through these chemotherapeutic regimens and radiation to deplete their bone marrow, and that destroys all their spermatogonial stem cells as well, so they become infertile. So the holy grail sort of in this field in survivorship, most of these boys are cured of their cancer. The survival rates are over 85% now, but they are infertile as adult men has been to harvest these spermatogonial stem cells and try to expand them in vitro in a, in a test tube or in a tissue culture setting so that they can be re-injected or used in in vitro fertilization down the road. And no one's been able to do this. And so we sort of put two and two together from this data and from our work showing this defect in this critical factor that perhaps testicular endothelial cells were an important niche cell for spermatogonial stem cells. And interestingly, no one in that germ cell field, this spermatogonial stem cell field, has thought to use testicular endothelial cells. They've tried Sertoli cells. They've tried myoid cells. And when we did this, when we combined these as a feeder cell with the spermatogonial stem cells, they grew like gangbusters. And we could, you know, have them grow for months and months and generate gallons and gallons of these cell types. So that was in our mouse models. And then we were able to get human samples from these patients. So clinicians at CHOP take biopsies from these boys prior to, after diagnosis and prior to treatment, and they bank half of it and half of it they use for research. And we were able to expand all of those, multiple patients using testicular endothelial cells that we also harvested from either the patients or from a cadaveric donor to show that these, in fact, the same protocol could be used for human samples. Sandra, based on the title, I think that that, it undersells how big a deal this is because- I came from Shaheen's lab, who was a co-author on this study. And you may remember that about a decade ago this time, pre-Yamanaka, everyone was in search of a culture system for making human spermatogonial stem cells that could be sustained because mouse spermatogonial stem cells could be converted to this multipotent, pluripotent type equivalent of an embryonic stem cell. So it was really sought after as a means of getting human pluripotent stem cells without having to destroy embryos or whatnot. This is pre-IPF. So it was impossible for anybody to get these to be sustained in culture while the mouse were, not easily, but by many different, you know, feeder systems or even defined systems, you could expand SSCs and reimplant them and get reconstitution of the germline, but human, nothing. So I'm super impressed and a little bit shocked that the title wasn't Human SSCs, Cultured in Vitro. Can you just talk about why it was so hard for other groups to do that? And now, like what that you alluded to it, but what the big application of how if we could get get these frozen, cultured, ex vivo, in vitro, what's that going to open the door to? We agree. I mean, this has been a three-year battle to get this published. One, because we're not in the field, right? And two, because no one else had thought of this. I mean, we have people right here at our own institution that have been trying to do this. There's been one paper published by a group that was able to expand humans for matagonia stem cells. But what they do is they take all testicular cells 
and they plate this granular stem cells on top of that. And the problem with that is they didn't define which cells or which factors were necessary, so it's not reproducible. Not only have we defined the cell type that was necessary, but we've also identified four other factors that we describe in the paper that seem to be sufficient. We agree. So our next step is we're working with groups who have been doing this, right, converting spermatogonial stem cells into pluripotent stem cells to be differentiated to any cell type. I think the applications are tremendous, both in able to generate SSCs and allow them to be differentiated into any different cell type, as well as for this population, right, of pediatric males of cancer survivors. I think the hard thing is isolating the endothelial cells from primary endothelial cells is not trivial. I mean, we've been working on this for decades. So, you know, a lot of this is the technique. And I think some people have tried it and haven't gotten pure endothelial cells. And they're very gentle. I mean, it's tricky to work with them. So people who have thought they've tried it couldn't get this to work, but didn't have pure population of endothelial cells. The other aspect of this is we also think there's a small piece of data in that paper in supplemental where figures where we think it can be protective. We can inject testicular endothelial cells simultaneously with treatment, you know, gonadotoxic chemotherapy and bone marrow radiation and prevent the loss of spermatogonial stem cells. So there's a couple different avenues that we're looking at going forward. One related to in generating, you know, stem cells to be used in any differentiate, to differentiate to any cell type. Two, expanding these to be used, whether we reimplant them or differentiate them in vitro and use them for in vitro fertilization. And then three, using these testicular endothelial cells as a protective source prior to the onset of chemo and radiation. This study also really gets at the importance of the environment of the cells. And now with researchers more and more often using organoids for research, can you talk to what is going on in that the testicular environment to allow the interaction between the endothelia and the spermatogonia. What's happening there? That's really interesting. So we started generating these testes organoids. So no one's been able to take spermatogonial stem cells and differentiate them into mature sperm. And people have tried, but I think one of the key things, again, is they don't have the endothelial cells there, which you know, require all the factors or have all the factors necessary for not only self-renewal, but differentiation. We are now generating testes organoids with all of the cells in the seminiferous tubules, but along with testicular endothelial cells. And we're in the very early stages, but we think that might be sufficient to differentiate these stem cells in vitro, in addition, a 3D dish. And the 3D aspect is critical as well. These can't just be monolayer cultures. I mean, we see this in a lot of different organ environments. And there are a number of groups that have showed how important endothelial cells, including Shaheen's, right, in all these different organ environments. So I don't think it's surprising that these are a key population in the testes as well. I do find it interesting, this disconnect between people have shown it in the lung, in the liver, in the brain, in the bone marrow, but no one thought to apply this, you know, to the testes. It's sort of this lack of crosstalk between different fields. On that note, you talk about all the other organs in the testes. What about in the ovary? Would you say, given that there's no oogonia, that endothelial cells may not play a role? or there's a lot of other biology in the ovary. There is a lot of other biology. Interestingly, this pediatric oncologist, Dr. Jill Ginsberg, who we work with, also harvests tissue from young girls, right? Because they also deplete their oocytes. So she wants us to try that, take out ovarian endothelial cells to see if that can help support the maintenance of oocytes. 
what would be your, you would hypothesize that endothelium plays a function in like growth, follicle growth, or maintaining the follicles quiescent? Do you have any direction? Because, you know, I happen to study the ovary and maybe you could give me some ideas. I think it might be important in quiescence. It's interesting that you know that just because of initial profiling of ovarian endothelial cells, some of the factors, I think, maintain quiescence rather than promote growth. I think endothelial and different organ environments have different roles, but they contribute somehow to many of the stem cells. I just keep thinking about this area of research and then Dalen bringing up the ovary and there are these efforts in play to create ova and sperm that could be used outside of people to assist in IVF, to solely produced sperm that would fertilize an egg outside of the human body created in petri dishes, you know, is this the direction that this is moving? I think for the spermatogon stem cells, so in terms of clinical application, right? So now we show we can, you know, and we have all these bank samples from these young boys, the first of who started, I think, 10 to 12 years ago, I mean, are now becoming young men who are infertile because our clinical protocol only takes testicular biopsies from patients who are absolutely going to be depleted of all spermatogon stem cell, have the harshest sort of chemo radiation. And, you know, I just actually met with urologists and the pediatric oncologists, and we think there are two things that we're going to do. One is to try to differentiate these in vitro and these testes organoid to be used in IVF, right, to fertilize in, because I don't think it's realistic to think we can re-inject the expanded spermatogonial stem cells into these men because of the site you have to inject into the reed testes is technically difficult. And we calculated based on pig studies, we'd need like 5 billion cells for one injection. It's probably not worthwhile to sort of expand that level. I think, you know, where you need a single functional spermatogonia to, you know, sperm cell to inject into an oocyte, like you said, in vitro. So that's the one direction we're going to do. We're going to go. And then also to determine whether we can take wedge biopsies from these boys and re-engraft when they're still young, right? So keep them expanded or cultured, you know, in vitro, expand a lot, and then sort of retransplant the chunk of uh, testes rather than inject and see if it re-engrafts in anastomosis with endogenous vasculature. Along those lines, so we're talking about maintenance in the stem cell niche, and I think Kiki may be kind of alluding to this creating stem cells in a dish. If you were Generating from a pluripotent progenitor there, as you know, has now starting to be done with human and it's been done with mouse. Do you think that having a supportive niche with the gonad specific ECs may be an important part of just the platform for differentiation or it's more important for maintenance? I think it's part of differentiation as well. I mean, we've taken IPS cells and we put them with cardiac ECs versus testicular ECs versus brain ECs. And we see them acquire the characteristics of those organs. Part of it is like identifying, particularly like the heart ECs with the IPS cells, you start to differentiate towards a cardiac lineage. So I think that's going to be a really important aspect in certain organs. I'm not sure that all of them, but just from preliminary studies in our lab. You mentioned the difficulty in kind of the crosstalk between disciplines and the difficulty in just getting this paper out there. As, because as you said, this is not your specialty, but this work is so impactful. Can you talk about maybe ways you've found to improve crosstalk to be able to get to the point of this publication? Have there been particular ways of contacting people and, and promoting 
this cross-disciplinary interaction? So I think, you know, some of the leaders in the male germ cell field were really skeptical of our results, right? I tried to go to the meetings like andrology meetings, the testis workshop to present our data. And people were very skeptical. So I reached out to specific investigators in the field and I said, can I send you cells? Can you send us cells? Can we cross reagents? And many were reluctant and just said they didn't have the time or energy, didn't believe enough in our preliminary data. But one or two were willing to do that. And we sent them testicular endothelial cells they sent us. And I think that's part of how it started to get accepted. But it's been an uphill battle. I mean, when I met with one of the fathers of the field and I said, you know, there are five cell types in the testes. One of them is going to be important, right? As it, and why won't you let, why won't you try each one systematically? This is one of many. And he just said, that's just not the way he does science. And some of these people are sort of old school and have been working on this for 25 years and don't think that this was the right approach. I mean, I came in from an endothelial centric view. So for us, it's reasonable. So I think it's just personalities, you know, and people are possessive over their areas of their expertise. Do you think maybe it was because you're a female and you were attacking their testicular endothelial? You know, it's funny you say that because an investigator who will go nameless said to me, quote, unquote, there have been a lot of smart men working on this problem for a decade. I doubt you two girls figured it out. Oh, Oh, no. And so that got reported to the chair and the dean of this person's institution. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. That's great. I'm glad that was reported. I feel like that would have gone unreported even a few years ago. This is true. Probably a few years ago would have. But I mean, couldn't believe that he actually said this. Uh, You really, in the end, you kicked him in the nuts. Oh, all right. (laughs) Sorry to you gentle, normal people out there. I'm not a normal person. One question on the serious note. So it occurs to me that, you know, huge diabetes, cardiovascular diseases of the vessels. And is there an implication in terms of, I'm sure there is probably higher rates of infertility with older men for, and then maybe a bit linked to cardiovascular disease even, but what about like autism, paternal effect? Do you think that sperm quality and like the quality of the DNA or clonal expansion of bad SSCs or anything is related to the niche? That's very interesting. And You know, it's funny because there is a group that reached out to us after this paper who works on this link between autism and older father's age, paternal age. So they asked us about the aged secretome of an endothelial cell. And we've done those studies. It's different. Not in any of the obvious factors, but you take the secreted proteins from testicular endothelial cells from a mouse that's two years old versus one that's six weeks old, very different levels of the proteins. There was no obvious link. I mean, we've only gotten our first pass at that, but I think that's an interesting way to go and something to look at and how that might affect spermatogonial differentiation and profiling. So it's something we've sent some of these collaborators, some of these cells to look more in depth to see if any of these factors make sense. So as we get to the end of the interview here, I'd love to know if there's anything else involved in this research that you'd love to tell people about things that you're working on that you want to share. Well, as I mentioned, you know, we got into this from Down syndrome because some of the, the, one of the pathways that I work on, five of the genes on chromosome 21 negatively regulate this pathway. And this pathway is really important in endothelial cell activation to different extents in different endothelial cell organ environments. But 
you know, we've really been informed by clinical phenotypes in Down syndrome. So for example, they have cardiac valve defects and we think cardiac endothelial cells are defective and that contributes to these defects. So we're working on that now. We had published a study on this, you know, incidence, decreased incidence of solid tumors due to lack of tumor angiogenesis. This population of individuals with this, you know, genetic defect has been remarkably informative to us understanding normal biology. And I feel like Down syndrome is always portrayed in such a negative light that it's something very positive to come out of, you know, our understanding of this genetic disorder, including this infertility. So, Silver lining there. Yeah. As the final question, we like to choose from a set of questions that recur. And, you know, it'd be probably more fun if we chose them at random, but we don't because then they wouldn't necessarily be appropriate. But we chose for you, and I hope you won't mind, seem like a dynamic individual that could have done anything. What would you have done if not become a famous and successful <laughs> innovator? I would have been a politician. So you knew. That's it. Some people are like, ha, hum, hum. you knew exactly what you're going to do. Yeah, okay, yeah. Tell, tell us, please elaborate. I'm very involved, you know, in the local grassroots. I'll run for local office in a few years. You know, nothing that takes over my full-time job, something at my local township level, but I'm out canvassing, fundraising, marching, everything. So I have for a number of years more extensively in the past two than ever before. <laughs> Coincidence? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the last two years have been a real political motivator. Is that, do you think that that has made you a different, has that affected your science at all, made you um, think differently? You know, I think I was always moving towards really clinical relevance, but I understand, right, the limited dollars, the NIH, and how we need to be good stewards of the money and what this means for public health. I think as a graduate student, I thought more about sort of basic signaling questions and maybe five steps away from the bedside. I think now my research program is really two steps away, bench to bedside, and I think that's important. And, you know, I still believe in model organisms and really basic understanding of biology, but for me personally sort of understanding, you know, my link towards politics and the budget and healthcare and all these things, I like to be a little closer to the bedside in what we do. So, which doesn't mean you can't do basic biological mechanisms, but, you know, understanding the pathways in testicular endothelial cells that impact fertility and survivorship, I think has really profound and profoundly impacted my research direction and the way I think about questions. And doing that, those basic questions and knowing that you're potentially doing research that will have a benefit to people, it's got to be satisfying at the end of the day. It's great. And uh, all my collaborators are clinicians. So for every sort of basic project, we are always collaborating with a clinician. Like, what does this mean? How can we apply this? Does this matter? And how far away from making it matter? It's great. And, you know, the team I have, is I can't say enough about the trainees in my lab. Last question. I'm sorry, just because it's been a big week. What do you think? In the next 10 years, will we have another gene-edited person? Or it'll, is it going to be a total stall? And then are we just that plug In other countries, I really think that we're heading towards that direction in other countries, which have less regulation than the United States. It's already underway. Heady times. Really. The genie is out of the bottle. There is no putting it back in. <laughs> it's hard to go backwards, so... Yeah. Well, I think, you know, your point of being politically active at your community level, it is something that so many scientists now more than ever should be thoughtful of maybe trying to participate in that way because of these advances in science that are really going to change society and have cultural impacts. And so 
Politics is policy. So thank you for your work in the lab and out of it. I really, really have appreciated getting to talk to you today. Thank you both. This has been really great. I really appreciate it. Before we go, the stem cell science field has grown in scope and complexity with new technologies such as organoids, CRISPR, CAR-T immunotherapy, which Dalen was mentioning earlier in the show. These are all in play and the field is moving fast and getting closer to the clinic. At the same time, all sorts of issues related to policy, ethics, and regulation are arising. The Stem Cell Podcast is in a unique and valuable position to be able to help the community, the research community, navigate these advancements by keeping listeners current with recent publications and hosting conversations with key players in the field, which we've been doing for the last few years and hope you enjoy it. And the goal with the Stem Cell Podcast is to be super accessible, current, and a valuable resource for stem cell scientists. So the Stem Cell podcast is going to double down on the stem cell research focus of the podcast. After all, it is the stem cell podcast, right, Dalen? Yes. Unfortunately, this means that we're going to be discontinuing the general science portion of the Roundup segment because there's loads of podcasts out there that do an awesome job keeping people current on general science, like, for instance, Kiki's podcast, This Week in Science, which lettered us here. So we want to leave the general science summaries to those great resources, specifically Kiki, and make sure that we're doing what we do best, keeping everyone current on what's going on in the stem cell world. So this episode will be our last one that features a general science roundup. Kiki's going to be moving on, and I'll be holding down the fort for a while. Eek! Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see about that. But uh, Kiki's not going anywhere. Well, she's not. She's going away from the, the stem cell podcast, but she's going to be where you always found her. Kiki, why don't you tell us again, remind us where we can find you. You can find This Week in Science, the TWIS podcast at twis, T-W-I-S dot O-R-G. Twist.org is where you can find all sorts of links to ways to subscribe to my podcast and find recent episodes and other things related to the show. And I also do video production and can help people tell their science stories. So if you're interested in that, my website there is broaderimpacts.tv. Broaderimpacts.tv. That's what we're all hoping for, broader impacts. I'm excited, Kiki. I mean, I'm very anxious, and I'm, uh, you know, it's a bummer to be uh, splitting up with you. I'm anxious about getting out of my own, but I'm excited because I think it's a chance for us to maybe get better here at the Stem Cell Podcast, incorporate some new things, and really try and focus. And I know you're psyched about what you're doing, and you're probably relieved to be. I'm kind of an annoying person generally. Not at all. You are fabulous. And I have had such a wonderful time hosting this podcast with you. It's been just a, an absolute joy and something that I look forward to every two weeks. And I know you're going to take it in a wonderful stem cell focused direction. And you're going to continue to have amazing interviews with top researchers and bring everyone the stem cell news that they want to know, that they need to know to become better researchers themselves. And so I'm glad that the stem cell podcast is going to be moving into this new phase of its life. It's going to be fantastic. It's important. 
I'm sad to not be a part of it anymore, but yeah, I'm going to be focusing on my own, on my own podcast, on my own video production endeavors. I'm even thinking of writing a book. Oh boy. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of changes. You can tell us uh, what you think of these changes, all you listeners out there. Email us at info at stemcellpodcast.com or find us on Twitter at at stem cell podcast. I got to get on the Twitter. Yeah, I'm on the Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Kiki. That's D-R-K-I-K-I at Dr. Kiki. (laughs) And the Twitter is a wonderful place to follow, not just the stem cell podcast, but lots of scientists and sciencey people. Twitter's pretty fun for that. But oh my gosh, I can't believe this is coming to an end. Thank you for being a wonderful, wonderful host with me. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening and enjoying the past few years that I've been on the show. It's just been an honor to be a host for this show and to bring you the news. And that does it for episode 131 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show. Thank you, Kiki. Thank you, everyone out there.